0: Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I'm passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my all time favorite dialogues because, as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Isaiah 53 contains one in a series of songs that is called a servant song, and depending on your own context, your conclusion of who this servant is will change. Last week, Dr. Yeshayahu Gruber, Dr. Tupagera, Gera, and Dr. Nicholas Shazer, who are all part of IBC's faculty, discussed the many interpretations of the identity of the servant. And when we read through 2nd Isaiah, we see this identity can be anything from the collective identity of Israel to one individual. This week, our same panel is going to discuss how other ancient writers understood Isaiah 53. Last week, we talked about some of the ambiguity in the text, and Dr. Tupagera mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls. So let's start there. You may know the history of these scrolls. They were found by Bedouin in 1946 and then collected and analyzed by scholars until about 1956. What is still a mystery to us, despite all of our study, is who were the original owners of the scrolls and why were they stored in the caves around the Dead Sea? Now, there are lots of theories on this, and that should probably be its own podcast episode. One of the things the scrolls do reflect is the fact that Judaism of Second Temple period was not just one great organized religion. We should really be talking about the Judaisms, plural, of that time as different groups interpreted and practiced their faith in very different ways. Dr. Guerra is going to get us started today by talking about what we learn about the interpretation of Isaiah 53 from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Lean in and enjoy the conversation.
1: One translation made by Bromley, which is one of the first scholars to work with the Dead Sea Scrolls, he published this in 1953. So this is just after the discovery. And one of the first texts they discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls was the, what we call the Great Isaiah Scroll. And it's called the Great Isaiah Scroll, first of all, because it's a scroll from Isaiah and it's big. So the Great Isaiah Scroll. It's beautiful. Okay, maybe I'm the one who thinks it's beautiful because I look at those texts. And for other views, ah, it's a text. No, it's it's nicely written, it's it's so well preserved, so it gives so much for us. And here he's translating this part and he's looking into Isaiah 52, 14 and 15. And there is one word that if you guys are following and if you guys know your text much, you'll see that it's a bit different.
0: And just in case you do not readily know what these verses say, I'll remind you. This is the fourth servant song that leads up to chapter 53. So chapter 52, 13 starts with, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Then verse fourteen, which Tupa will focus on in a bit, says, "Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any other man, and his form more than the sons of men." And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that word "marred" is a little different. So back to Tupa, who is reading from the Great Isaiah Scroll,
1: "As many were astonished at you, I saw." anointed his appearance beyond anyone else and his form beyond that of other sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations because of himself and kings shall shut their mouths for that which had not been told them they have seen to that which they had not heard they have understood. So I have here anointed and not married. And this is a very different way to look at this word. And what Bromley is talking to us here is explaining to us as, that we can have either mishat or we can have mishat. You see that the end is a bit different. Uh, so both interpretations are possible for the same word. And what Brownlee is proposing here is that by using the word anointed, what the uh, what the text was trying to tell us was that this was a messianic figure. This is a messiah, because as we've seen, uh, the idea that what Isaiah is talking about is a messiah is not necessarily, it's not that clear in the text. It can be interpreted from all the texts, but it's not that clear. So Bromley thinks that this copy of Isaiah, this particular one, was specifically tailored to make it less ambiguous, to make it more to make it easier for people to understand it, what it was referring here was the Messiah. And
2: If I can just jump in here, I think it's important yeah. to mention, maybe you did, maybe I missed it, but just so people know the the Hebrew word Mashiach, that is usually translated Messiah, it just means anointed. So that's the connection here. An anointed person is Messiah. And in the Hebrew Bible, it wasn't just one person. It wasn't only the Messiah, like we think of it today usually, but it was a, there were many messiahs in the Hebrew Bible, um, kings that were anointed and so forth, priests that were anointed. Um, But eventually around this time, this idea of the messiah the you know, the quintessential anointed one emerged and it's the same concept. In English, it sounds very different, anointed and messiah, but in Hebrew, it's the same concept.
0: Even in ancient times, there was a movement to try to clarify the ambiguity in Isaiah and to point to a specific anointed Messiah, which leads us now to the New Testament writers who did something similar. Nick is going to take it from here, but he will make several references to the various servant songs in Isaiah. If those are not familiar to you, go back and listen to last week's episode, or hit pause on this episode and read Isaiah forty through fifty-five. So, what are the New Testament authors doing with Isaiah? The gospel
3: writers pull directly from the, the last servant song and they apply it to Jesus. Here's Isaiah fifty-three twelve, the last line of the servant song, that that the servant poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So in Luke's gospel, Jesus says the following, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. So that's just a clear reference to Jesus as, well, I shouldn't say as the servant. Let's read that closely. Okay. Um, Jesus is numbered with the transgressors. Okay, so in the context here, it's like his disciples have swords, you know, and uh, ultimately he's going to be crucified between two thieves, two robbers, really, laestates in Greek, and so in this way he is numbered alongside transgressors. Okay, um, and so that's what Jesus means. But notice the terminology here. I tell you that this scripture, that's Isaiah fifty three twelve, must be fulfilled in me. Okay, meaning this the text is sitting there and what i am going to do is going to fulfill in greek that's plurao, but it comes from the aramaic term likayem, which means to establish it to it really comes so likayem is is aramaic but it comes from the hebrew word kum which means to get up or to stand up straight so what jesus is saying is i'm going to take Isaiah 53 and stand it up prop it up and show you how i'm going to do it fulfill it in my own life This is what's called recapitulation. So Jesus is the servant, despite the fact that the um, original servant, I think, right, in Isaiah is a remnant of righteous Jews within Israel whose suffering helps the collective go home out of exile. What the New Testament writers are saying is, yes, we actually affirm that. And Jesus is going to do it in himself in a righteous remnant of one. Uh, he's going to die among transgressors in order to save his people from their sins, just like back in Isaiah's day, a righteous remnant did the same for Israel in exile. So that is, it can be both and. It, it's what my my advisor and um, and a return scholar to IBC, Amy Jill Levine, was always want to say, is that New Testament readers who want to apply this to Jesus can double dip. That's what the gospel writers do. They dip once for Isaiah and Isaiah's original context. Yes, this scripture exists, and it's about the righteous remnant of Israel in Isaiah's day. And then you double dip, and you say, and it's about Jesus. It's not either or in the minds of the gospel writers. It's both and, okay? I'm going to show you how this works going forward. This is Acts chapter 8, where Philip runs into an Ethiopian who's reading from this very passage. And he says, all right, um he says, you know, to whom is is the text referring? Is it the prophet saying it about himself or is it someone else? And then the last line here is says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. Now, interestingly, it doesn't say Philip immediately said this is referring to Jesus. Okay. That's not what the text actually says. What Philip does is uses this text as a springboard to talk about the good news of Jesus. So as with Israel in Israel's past, so with Jesus as a righteous individual who saves the Jewish people from their sins, according to the gospels and acts. Tupa has talked a lot about text, you know, having multiple meanings. Okay. That's really important for, for New Testament readers to understand. I'm going to show you something here. So Luke we've seen in Luke's gospel refers to Isaiah 53, 12 to Jesus, right? That's true. And then in Acts, Luke's second volume, Philip, you know, talks about the Isaiah servant song with reference to Jesus. So it's clear there's a Jesus connection, no question. But look at this. Here's the beginning of Luke's gospel. At the outset of Luke's gospel, Mary says in the Magnificat, God has helped his servant Israel, the collective people, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That is a textual allusion to the first reference to the servant in Isaiah 41. You are Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham. You see how all that language reappears at the beginning of Luke with Mary's declaration? So here, right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 41 is the people of Israel as a whole, the collective, just like it is in Isaiah 41, all right? And it's Jesus. You see that? It's both and at the same time. Here is um, Isaiah 49.6, which we looked at, I'll make you as a light for the nations or a light of nations that my salvation might reach to the end of the earth. That that's a reference to the suffering servant of Isaiah. Look how Luke uses it in Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, the Lord has commanded us, the two of us saying, I have made you a light for the nations that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So in Acts, Paul and Barnabas say that the Isaiah 49 servant is them. They are fulfilling what the servant did in Israel's past. So that is all to say there are multiple reference by one author. That's Luke, the, God, the writer of the gospel and acts, multiple reference for the identity of the servant. And the writer is not bothered about this. <laughs> okay. So to, just to go back to Tupa's point in Jewish thought, multiple texts can have multiple meanings and refer to more than one person. Okay, let's let's just summarize what I've done here with the New Testament. Luke, the writer of Luke Acts, equates the suffering servant with four different figures, Jesus, Israel, the the nation, Paul and Barnabas. So if the same New Testament author can use the servant songs with reference to more than one figure, the insistence among many Christian apologists that the servant only and specifically only refers to Jesus is misplaced. I would go so far as to call it unbiblical because Luke doesn't do that. Luke does not silo the servant and Jesus alone, but but uses those servant texts to, referral, to refer to multiple reference. Now, at the same time, the insistence among certain Jewish groups, okay, there, there are certain groups who are like, you know, you've got Christian apologists that say it's only Jesus and they dig their heels into the ground. You've got, you know, Jewish groups who also say it can't be Jesus. But here's the thing. To say it can't be Jesus, I I would say that's equally problematic because in Jewish tradition, there's all sorts of options that the rabbis talk about for the identity. We've seen some of them, the nation of Israel, Moses and other rabbinic uh, traditions, uh, Jeremiah we've talked about, Rabbi Akiva, a very famous rabbi in Jewish tradition. He is equated in the Talmud with the servant on some level, or indeed, as we saw with the Targum right at the beginning of of our talk. The Targum says it's the Messiah. You know what? There are other options too in Jewish tradition. So the notion that, is, that Isaiah's suffering servant could be all or any of these suffering figures, but not Jesus, is something of a contradictory argument. Nick, um,
2: I think that this both and thinking comes up all the time when you really dig into biblical texts. And and that's one of the biggest differences maybe between looking at the the text in their original context whether we're talking about a prophet like isaiah or for for that matter a text like genesis or exodus or even the gospels later the dead sea scrolls it's a big difference between that ancient mindset and type of literature and the way that many people think today in our modern very western influenced usually world um, where we're looking for the answer they're written in a completely different style and there very often is this both and thinking that I think is really important.
3: I would just say that it's actually incumbent upon the Bible reader, the person who takes the Bible seriously, to actually bow to that both and framework. I know it hurts the modern mind sometimes to do that, but it's it's absolutely imperative actually. You can't get around it because, Clearly the servant is Israel, right? The nation sometimes in those texts in Isaiah, clearly it's a righteous remnant that's, that helps Israel, all right? That doesn't deserve suffering. And then also the New Testament writers, look at also Jeremiah, okay, we saw the comparative between Jeremiah, that stuff is in there. The text says what it says. So it's not wrong to equate the servant with these different figures or, or entities. It's also not wrong to equate the servant with Jesus. Because the gospel writers make that claim explicit, right? Make that assertion, that parallel explicit. In fact, Jesus is only makes sense, all right, insofar as he recapitulates what Isaiah has said about Israel's history. So actually to extricate the servant as the righteous remnant in Israel's uh, history from Jesus and to say it can only mean Jesus is actually going against how the gospel writers would have understood Isaiah. So the reader, the Christian reader, needs to submit to that. And if they're not doing that, this is why I call it unbiblical, because then you're going against, if it's only Jesus, then it's not Paul and Barnabas and Israel and the righteous remnant of Israel. So the last thing you'd want to do, it would, it would be, again, double dipping, both end. Yes, the righteous remnant of Israel. Yes, Jesus. It has to be both ends. It can't be either or.
1: I'm thinking about everything we spoke today and thinking about how dense it was, because it looks at first glance, oh, we're going to talk Isaiah 53. It's okay, I know this text, I know the references, I'm fine, I know what it means. And then we start to look into it, and that's fascinating. And also, because I believe that's also the, the goal of the text, is to make you think about other things, and to realize other things, and to understand other things, and to question your modern mind. Because we are we were raised in a society in which we think there is... Only one answer for everything, and as Nick was saying, and both both work, and they don't need to exclude each other.
0: Having conversations like this is very characteristic of what Israel Bible Center does. If you participate in our monthly online seminars, you will see the faculty discussing differing points of view on a large variety of issues. And if you like these kind of conversations and are not yet connected to the vast resources of IBC, consider enrolling as a student. From the comfort of your own home and at your own pace, you can take classes and within a year, earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.